the Bible is the story of redemption. And this year we've made it our aim to try to put uh, the Bible, which is 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Uh, we've tried to this year to look at the Bible a little bit different from a 30,000 foot view uh, to try to tell the story because many times the books are uh, maybe not in uh, chronolo chronological order exactly and so try to put the story together in a chronological sense and the dates and the times and uh, the geography of it and uh, to help you as Christians to maybe look at the Bible in a more systematic way. Um, uh, maybe you can put the books of the Bible. And so really my intent is to at least allude to all the books of the Bible. I know we probably haven't got there. Some of the minor prophets, and I know their mothers are upset with us, you know, just kind of weren't mentioned in the Old Testament. But we spent the first seven months of this year uh, looking at the Old Testament. And then last Sunday we really two Sundays ago, began to make the transition into the New Testament. And the story of redemption finds its climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to make the statement today that the climax is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what we have been building towards. That's the reason we have an Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant, and we have a, a New Testament, which is the New Covenant. It is the ultimate covenant. It is the story of Jesus, and the story of Jesus, particularly his life, death, and resurrection, is told in four accounts, what we call Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You say, well, why do we have to have four stories? Well, because there were different people had different perspectives uh, of the life of Jesus. But here's even more critical. They had a target audience. And maybe you've never thought about this, but the gospel writers had a target audience. There was somebody they were gearing the message of Jesus to. And here was their intent, all of them. And maybe you've never thought about this, but actually, um, the very word gospel is where we get our word uh, evangelism or evangelistic from. The intent of the gospels was to evangelize a particular group of people, whether that was Jewish people or whether that was Gentile people in Rome, as we'll look at today in the book of Mark. All of the gospels have an evangelistic purpose. It is so that it will lead people to the point of decision about what am I going to do with Jesus Christ, who is the climax of the whole story. If you miss him, you miss the story. He is the climax, his life, death, and resurrection. The intent of the Gospels was so that the people that read them and heard them would believe. That's the purpose. The Gospels were not written, I don't think, primarily for churchy little people to go, oh, it, it would be nice to reminisce about, 
all those neat things that Jesus did while he was on earth. Oh, I just get mm, warm fuzzies when I read about it. And I'm not dismissing that, but the original intent was that people would hear the gospel message of the story of Jesus and they would believe. We looked at last week the gospel of Matthew and he starts with the birth of Jesus. This morning we're going to look at the gospel of Mark and he's going to begin with John the Baptist. I'm not going to talk about the birth. Luke's gospel has different stories even of the birth of Jesus than uh, Matthew had. John's gospel, written after all the others, uh, has a theological take. And so he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of the world, and the light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness uh, did not comprehend or overcome it. And then he says later, he says, he came into his own. This is what I wanted you to hear from John 1. He came unto his own, speaking of Jesus. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's the old King James. It's from birth. It did not receive him. I think it's the new King James. But as many as did receive him, he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. Here it is. Even those who believed in his name, who were born not of the will of man or the will of the flesh or of blood, but are born of God. Man, such incredible words. He came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. The gospels are written that we might receive the message and believe in Jesus. That was their intent, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Mark's gospel begins with the story of John the Baptist. I really only have eight verses for you this morning. I know you don't believe that. We're going to keep it simple because Mark's gospel is simple. This is how Mark begins his gospel, Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. 
Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mm. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have scheduled these sermons so that we will cover uh, the four Gospels and kind of within the chronological flow of uh, what they're relating. And so last Sunday we looked at the Gospel of Matthew and we'll revisit it, but looked at the birth of Jesus. This Sunday we want to look at the ministry of John the Baptist from Mark's account, which we've just read. Next Sunday, we will look at Luke's gospel and talk about uh, Jesus' teaching and discipleship, that concept, big, big ideas in the one big story. And then the next Sunday, we will look at the gospel of John and look at the miracles, the signs that Jesus performed. And, you, and when you think we're finished with the life of Jesus, ho, 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 not so quick, then we're going to have to go back and look at the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and we'll pick up some of those other gospel accounts. But the gospel of Mark, I want, to have you, I want you to have a sense of the gospel of Mark, and really what I'm about to share with you is on this sheet, and I know you can read, most of you. Um, and so let me hit some highlights the Gospel of Mark, even though it is not written within his Gospel, was written by a man by the name of John Mark, and the early church fathers attest to this. Their history of their early churches, they said, John Mark wrote that Gospel. Um, John Mark, and you can see the scriptures on your sheet, was a, his family was a part of the early church family. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that he was a companion to Paul and Barnabas on their missionary trips. He leaves. Uh, and then there's a dispute in Acts 15 uh, between Paul and Barnabas. We discover later that actually John Mark is a cousin to Barnabas. And Paul says we're not taking him back because he left the work on the first trip. But eventually John Mark is restored in his faith, to, in his relationship with Paul. And ends up in Rome with Paul in prison, and then eventually ends up with Peter in prison in Rome. And it is from the witness, the mouth of the apostle Peter, that he gets his gospel. So that is the apostolic authority between this second gospel. Uh, the gospel of Mark is a fast-paced action story. It, of all the Gospels that would have been written for a movie script, it is Mark's Gospel. Uh, the most uh, repeated word in Mark's Gospel is the word immediately. And it starts in verse 1. It's like, and immediately Jesus went, and immediately, and immediately, 30 times. It is this fast-paced, action-packed story of what Jesus did. Very little teaching. 
of Jesus is recorded in Mark. It's mostly what Jesus did. Um, and it's fast-moving. Um, the gospel was written for Gentiles in Rome so that they would know the story of Jesus and they would believe. And so it has a different flavor than Matthew's gospel, which would have quoted a lot of Old Testament scripture, Mark, very seldom, even though we've read some of them today. And Mark's gospel, I don't know why there's certain things you remember, certain professors in seminary and you flash back. Dr. Uri <laughs> always talked about this secret in the gospel of Mark, that it's this unfolding mystery, a revelation of who is Jesus? So it's, it's like this movie script where you're going, wait a second, now who is this guy? Now, he did that? What does that mean? And, and it's this unfolding story of this revelation of Jesus who is described in Mark's gospel by his term of humanity, which was the son of man. But you see him as the servant. Eventually in Mark, he becomes not just the servant that does the things of God. He becomes the suffering servant who gives his life for the world and so the gospel of mark is the shortest of the four gospels it is the simplest so all the other gospels have the story of john the baptist but um, it's it, they're longer versions so his is the shortest the simplest and we believe it is the earliest of the gospels he begins with the story of John the Baptist. If you look in our scripture that we've read today, in verses 2 and 3, he quotes scriptures that I talked about two weeks ago from Malachi 3.1, the first one, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he quotes Isaiah 43, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And we talked about this two weeks ago. John the Baptist was the prophetic Elijah who is to come. The Elijah who is to come is the last prophetic word 400 years before John the Baptist. And we date the ministry of John the Baptist in 26 AD. Over 400 years ago, the last prophetic word in um, Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 there is this Elijah who is to come before the great day of the Lord. And 400 years of prophetic silence, waiting for God to speak. And John becomes that messenger who prepares the way for God's coming. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. The key word, if you'll notice, repeated in verses 2 and 3 to the ministry of John the Baptist is the word prepare. You've got to stick that in your brain right now. John the Baptist is a forerunner to Christ who came to prepare for the coming of the king. The second key word, may not have picked up on this, is the word wilderness. The other Gospels tell us that John was a man who lived in the wilderness. He was a wilderness man. In fact, it says later uh, in verse 6 that he was clothed in camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. Rob Hughes, I mean, this is, this is like a man's man. I mean, he's like, I watch shows on TV about the mountain men. 
John the Baptist, they would have, if he had been living today, they would have, he would have been one of those mountain men, you know. Uh, guy that lives off the land, he's just a, maybe has a little bit of crazy in his eyes, you know. You just go, okay, well, who, I don't know what this guy's going to do. Um, but the other Gospels tell us that he was in the wilderness as a young man. Uh, can I show the picture, Peyton, of the wilderness, the Judean wilderness? Um, Y'all know you're going to get pictures of the Holy Lands for now until I don't know when. Uh, it's, it's stark. When you leave Jerusalem heading east and the guy goes, look out the bus window. <laughs> that is the Judean wilderness. There's nothing out there. And here's the reason why. The rain comes from the Mediterranean Sea in the west and the Here's, here's a news flash. The Mediterranean Sea is at sea level. Anyhow, I, some of you don't get it and the others are laughing. Okay, that's fine. Jerusalem is at 20, uh, 2,500 feet. And so the moisture comes in the clouds from the, sea, the, the Mediterranean Sea. And as it comes to the mountain, it drops the rain in the region, the hill country of Jerusalem. And then it keeps moving east. But there is no rain left. And all of a sudden, you begin to plunge almost 4,000 feet because the, the, sea, the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. It is uh, something like 1,300, 1,400 feet below sea level. So the moisture comes from the Mediterranean Sea, dumps on the mountains around Jerusalem, and then when it crosses into this 20 to 25-mile section, there is no rain, very little rain, and it is desolate. Amy, there were, there were Bedouin herders and goats out there, and we're not sure how they were surviving. But all of a sudden, you drop the 4,000 feet in the Judean wilderness. When the biblical writers in the New Testament, and this question was asked to me, we're not talking Old Testament, so when they wandered in the wilderness, that was the Sinai Peninsula, that's south of here. When they talk about the wilderness, everyone there knew exactly what you're talking about. It's the Judean wilderness. And John was living there, somehow. Um, he is a wilderness man. The interesting thing is, from verse 6, he is clothed like Elijah. And we could go back to 2 Kings 1.8 and see that the way he was dressed and looked was just like Elijah. But I'm going to tell you, geographically, he was in the same location as Elijah. The other key word is the word he came baptizing. Baptizing. Uh, well, duh. Okay, he's John the Baptist. Okay, this is what he's known for. He was preaching and he was baptizing in the wilderness. So verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness. The crazy thing is when you begin to put the geography together, what you realize is John had to be connected with a group of uh, monastic um, people, men who isolated themselves in this wilderness region called the Essenes, and I introduced those two weeks ago, a part of a place called Qumran, and we went there in our, in our trip and the Essenes in Qumran practiced ritual baths of purification 
twice a day. This is what they did. They isolated themselves. And we talked about this two weeks ago when the, the Hellenistic culture began to, to cave in on the Jewish people people responded in different ways. The Essenes said, we're going to isolate ourselves and we're going to stay pure so that when the day of the Lord comes, we're going to be prepared. Uh, the, the Essenes lived in the wilderness. Can I show, let me show, what a, I have two other pictures, I think. Yeah, this is one, this is in Qumran and this is one of their baths that they would have walked down on the left side, dipped themselves, and they would have come up. The Essenes were practicing baptism. Second picture, is there a third picture? Is there another picture? Ah, that's all right. Go back to the hmm, second picture. Yeah, the picture before that. I'm sorry. Before that, yeah, there we go. Uh, they had this ingenious system of collecting the water whenever it did rain, the runoff into channels, and would fill these pools up, and they could sustain themselves uh, by these cisterns uh, that they had. Uh, the Essenes did not marry, which really cuts down on, you know, if we're going to propagate this movement, you know, and there's no, you know what they did? They would take in orphan boys. Some biblical scholars have theorized that John the Baptist, whose parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were beyond childbearing bearing age, died and John the Baptist as a boy ends up because much of his message and his methodology patterns the Essenes of the Qumran community and specifically the baptism part of that. Um, ah, the Essenes were also known for the Dead Sea Scrolls. <clears throat> we don't have time for this. The, the hugest, the hugest, is that a word? No, it's not a word. A really big the biggest, the most ginormous, that's not a word either, the, the largest uh, archaeological find were the Dead Sea Scrolls that were, they were the Old Testament scrolls plus some other writings by the Essenes that were hidden in clay containers, in caves, Qumran, because the reality is when the Romans came and wiped out everybody, they killed all the, the Essenes. And it wasn't until 1947 that a shepherd, a Bedouin shepherd who had lost a goat in the wilderness, went looking and found the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Man, I don't have time to even describe to you what the significance of that is. Look it up. Google it. It's huge. Next picture. Sorry. I've got a point this morning. We're getting to it. The next picture, please, Peyton, this one. Here's the crazy thing. When you're there, what you do is you're, I'm standing there at Qumran, and I'm looking at it, and our, our guide goes, you can see off in the distance the jo Jordanian Valley, the, the, the Jordan River Valley. The Dead Sea's kind of the body of water. This isn't a great picture to the right, but just a couple miles or a couple inches <laughs> north of that, he goes, that's the spot where John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness. Hmm. So there's a geographical connection with the Qumran community. I'll just continue to blow your minds. If you were here on Sunday night, you've already heard this when you saw my pictures. That spot, and I know you can't see it. Just trust me, it's that green area right there to the left of the Dead Sea. But it just kind of blew my mind. That is the spot 
where when Joshua was bringing the children of Israel into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan right there. Right there. It is the... Get ready. It is also the spot when Elijah was going to be carried off into heaven. He crossed the Jordan River. Read it. Right there. Where Joshua had come in, Elijah, the chariot of fire, caught him at that same spot. When John came baptizing, that's the spot. You can see it. It's about five miles from Qumran, and it creates a triangle between, and Jordan's, I'm sorry, Jericho is about five miles north of there, and there's a little triangle that's about five or six miles between Qumran, the spot on the Jordan River, and Jericho, which connects it all thematically. It is not by chance that John was baptizing there, and surely he had been a part of the Qumran community. That's not even the point this morning. He was preaching a baptism, verse 4, of repentance. His ministry was to prepare the people for the coming of the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, the Messiah whom God would send. I want you to think big picture this morning. God's plan is that He would send Jesus, King of Kings, Savior of the world, the Messiah whom God would send. But think about this. For some reason, God said, I'm going to do something before that. There is something that's going to happen before the one comes. This is how he ends the Old Testament. He says there is going to be someone who comes to prepare the people. And yes, the baptism is significant. But the preparation was contained in the significance of baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. Don't miss the big picture about what John is about. The preparation to receive what God is sending is repentance of the heart. We've got to talk about that today. The reason John came was to prepare them and their hearts to receive and in turn believe in the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, whom God would send, and to believe in Him. Baptism was simply an outward expression of that inward reality of repentance. You see, the in, and it, it's mentioned here in verse 4 and verse 5. In fact, the last words are sins. It was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then the end of verse 5, confessing their sins. The inward reality that had to be dealt with for them to receive what God was sending was sin. And all through the story, think about that. All through the story, the problem has been sin from the day in Genesis 3 when the first man and woman sinned. 
That has created separation with God. Why did it create separation from God? What is sin? We've got to deal with this today. Sin is me taking control of my life. It is me wanting to do my life the way I want to do life. And all of us are sinners. Your preacher's a sinner. Because in my base nature, I want to do what I want to do. I want to have it my way. And every person in this room has to deal with this issue of the problem in my life is me wanting to take control of my life. That is the essence of sin. That is at the very core of our being, our problem. It may demonstrate itself in different ways in your life and in my life. Could be destructive behavior, things that aren't in line with what God would want, but it's me saying that's what I want to do. Could be something deeper than that it could be pride that said I'm so concerned about my image that uh, I'm going to create walls around me so that people really can't see me for who I am because I'm really more concerned about what people think about me and what my image is in one of the other gospels the one group of people that John the Baptist had the biggest problem with were the most religious. He had very endearing terms to these people. He probably screamed, Oh, you brood of vipers who told you to flee from the wrath that is come. I really ought to finish John the Baptist's story at this point. John the Baptist is a huge figure historically. In fact, Josephus, who is the historian of the Jews in the first century, says, get this, he says more about John the Baptist than he says about Jesus. John the Baptist made people mad, and so they arrested him after he had baptized and announced the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, they put him in prison and eventually they cut his head off. He was that much of a threat to the political and religious powers that be. people that he had the biggest problem with were the religious. You go, wait a second. Why would the religious have anything to repent of? Because they're so good. Their religion 
was me controlling my life. You understand religion can be that? Religion's not necessarily of God. It can be me concerned about my self-image or me wanting to feel good about me, that I'm going to do all these things and it's going to be a checklist and I'm going to... That's the essence of pride that says my security with eternity and God is going to be my performance of doing good things and I'm going to stick to the law. See, that's what I'm saying. Me controlling my life and the essence of sin is demonstrated in our lives in different ways. And the people that John the Baptist had the biggest problem with were the religious leaders who supposedly had it all together. But their religion was me controlling my life. And so we come to the most significant word. It is the word repentance. A baptism of repentance. If sin is me taking control of my life, then repentance is me turning control of my life over to God. Surrender, submission to God as our king and authority. And, and here's, this is, no, this is the, Big picture, don't miss this. It was the one thing that was to prepare them to receive and believe in the Savior of the world who would come. Repentance. The only way you and I or anyone can receive what God has for us is when we first come to the place where we say I am not in control of my life and I surrender control of my life to God I submit my will and my life to an authority figure who is the king of kings a repentant heart is a heart that is prepared to receive what God has. That message was not simply true in John's day. It's true in our day. For our heart to be prepared to receive what God has for us, we must be repentant. We must turn control of our lives over to God. Do you understand the word that I've used over and over this morning is the word control. And as long as I'm in control of my life, principle of the scripture is I cannot receive what God has for me because what I've said is God I want to have it my way and do it my way and God just says Hillary he would say so how's that going to work out for you you know it's like that was a little sarcastic I'm sorry God is not sarcastic it's like okay well let's see how that works out for you no 
Oh, you want to do your own thing? No. God's going to respect you and your will to say, I can do what I want to do. Yeah, you can do what you want to do. And you're going to get what you're going to get. And I'm going to get what I get by saying, I want to be in control of my life. The one thing that God said before the king comes, the savior of the world, the Messiah whom God would send, the one thing that needs to happen in your life is repentance. You've got to give up control of your life and let God have control. So I don't know about your life. I know about my life. And I know what the issues are. But the point of John the Baptist is you've got to give it up to get what God has for you. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, I don't know what the issue would be in your life, what God would want you to do, what the point of submission, surrender is in your life. I'm just telling you, unless you're willing to give up control, you cannot receive what God has for you. And that, that may apply in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people in this group, in this crowd today. Would you have the courage to say today, I'll give up and give God control? Father, today in this time, I pray that you would use it. Father, you would teach us and draw us to repentance. Father, we thank you for the Savior. We thank you for your love for us. Father, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts to prepare for us to receive and believe. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name.